Hello, my name is Haley, and you're listening to Straight Talk with Dr. Bot, a podcast that answers your questions on addiction and mental health. I'm here today with our content director, Jeff, and of course, Dr. Bot, and today we're going to really examine addiction. Now, we've all heard of addiction, and most of us um, have probably known someone who struggled with it, and maybe we've struggled with it ourselves. But today we're going to break down what addiction really is and what's going on in the brain. Dr. Bott, can you give us the definition of addiction and then talk to us about why that definition is what it is? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Haley. You know, I think addiction, it probably could be interpreted differently by different people. And to define it, um, you know, probably could come up with multiple renditions, depending probably even where you are in the world. But here, mainly, you know, the United States um, scientific community, we look at addiction as, as, a, as a disease. We have the disease concept of addiction. And we really look at it analogous to other chronic diseases. So if you look at some of the, you know, major, um, you know, authorities here, um, that uh, dictate how we practice and standards of care. You know, I look at the American Society of Addiction Medicine. They do have a, a definition that talks about addiction being a, a, a chronic med- medical disease that um, you know, involves interactive interaction of brain circuitry, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences and how one um, engages and response to substances of abuse in a compulsive, obsessive manner, despite a lot of negative consequences. So they've kind of summarized it to be a little looser. This definition has evolved over the last many years. But I think the take home message is that it's a chronic medical illness um, that is manifested uh, with a lot of maladaptive relationships with substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, despite negative consequences. Yeah. You mentioned how it's changed over the years. Um, can you talk about why it's changed? Yeah. I mean, I think many of us know, uh, at least those who's practiced in, in, in this field, that, you know, a long time ago or not so long time ago, addiction was looked at as, as a behavioral problem. You know, it's something that you could just talk it out of them that, um, you know, people had some sort of weakness or lack of willpower. And, you know, we're doing this um, with the ability to just change, turning a light switch on or off. I think that that has really um, forced uh, the medical community to to reevaluate. Is that really the case? And that's evolved over time. So going from a place of it just being a, a, you know, a weakness or a lack of willpower to more of a, uh, a medical disease concept has helped us, you know, really uh, even the level the playing field and, and, and allowed those who suffer from addiction and mental illness um, to actually receive the care and um, the coverage they need for, for medical services. So, you know, going from a, 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 a real non-scientific definition to a few years ago, back, I think it was in 2011, where the American Society of Addiction Medicine really defined it as a, as a chronic brain disease of motivation, memory, reward, and related brain circuitry. And um, that evolved then a little bit more to a little bit looser interpretation of what we just spoke about. 
uh, a minute or so ago. Mm -hmm. And also not only have, you know, uh, people's opinions changed, but the medical professionals, but I feel like society's views have started to really evolve on addiction. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think culture uh, plays a big part. And, and I'm hoping society's views haven't changed because of the impact it's only taken on us financially and the cost economically, but also the fact that they are open to really looking at seeing it as, as the disease concept and getting the help for these individuals. Because, um, you know, sometimes it's unfortunate that when it hits people, is it hitting them in their, their, their pocketbook? That's usually a trigger to doing something about it. But, um, you know, looking at it from cross-cultural perspective, you know, yeah, I think there's still some, you know, um, ethnic groups. Uh, me, myself, I mean, I'm of Indian descent. I know um, people from India historically, you know, they, they, they thought people with mental illness or substance abuse problems just really had, you know, they needed to snap it out of them, you know, and it wasn't about. Um, some underlying neurobiological changes that are occurring in the brain. So I do believe, you know, where you are, how you grew up, the family that you're within, um, you know, the impact it's had on your life has, it influences how you define or accept, you know, the definition of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, it is a brain disease. Um, can you tell us like what's going on in the brain when someone has an addiction? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is complicated. There's there's so much going on in the brain. I mean, our brain is the most uh, awesome organ that we have. And, you know, the, the brain is made up of uh, so many different things going on inside. But, uh, you know, to simplify it, it's, it's like nobody knows what relationship a substance is gonna have with, with, with you and your body when you first introduce it. Yeah, I mean, genetics plays a huge part. But what we do know is that there are some chemical changes that do occur. So when somebody starts using a substance, for example, that provides them some sort of reward, that's, 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 that, that happens because, you know, it, it's affecting a major neurochemical, and that's, that's dopamine. So we, we, we start to see this kind of relationship develop when the drug creates a reward that you know, make somebody want to pursue it more. So if they start to feel good because dopamine's increased because a certain substance is introduced to them, that motivates them to use it again. It's when that imbalance starts to occur when somebody tends to use where they continue to use despite all of these negative consequences that are happening in their life. What's changing in that motivation? What hierarchy starts to get altered so they continue to use despite all these things that are going wrong. Mm -hmm. I know, Dr. Bot, that you, uh, you know, you're just talking about, <clears throat> you know, how addiction is like a, a biological medical condition. Um, do you, do you feel like, obviously genetics therefore plays some role on the development, but also, you know, cultural and, and social factors and individual personal choice, um, you know, impacts the development of addiction too. Um, can you kind of like maybe just discuss some of like the factors that influence addiction a little bit? Sure. I mean, from what we know, uh, at least what the, the, the science has been evolving to is that, you know, the majority, let's say 50% of someone's 
predisposition to develop addiction is genetically based. So we say genetics, that's, that's half of it right there. The other half is everything else that occurs in your life. So, you know, if you have the genetic and, and genetics doesn't simply mean inheritance. I think sometimes people get that confused, but genetics being the, the underlying construction of us on a, uh, you know, microscopic level on a, on a very small level, that's the, that's our building blocks. So everybody might be, you know, genetically similar in some way, but that doesn't mean they're all going to have the same resiliencies when exposed to, um, a substance of, of abuse or any substance at all. Um, that compounded with, you know, the presence or absence of other risk factors. If you have an underlying mental health condition or medical condition, a pain disorder, if you've been exposed to trauma or, or abuses in your life, you know, if you've used earlier. So, you know, the right insult, the right time combined with the right risk factors on top of your underlying foundation that really set against the backdrop of the environment that you live in, that kind of all together plays the roles in uh, formulating someone's path to addiction. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, you know, trauma and abuse. Can you tell us like, what are some of the other risk factors? Um, some of the other risk factors really is, is, is early onset, you know, from some of the studies that are done, um, you know, through NIDA and, and other, uh, governing bodies for, let me say that, um, you know, we do see that, you know, early onset, early onset of usage, early frequency of usage. Um, if there is certain genes that are present, the ones that we do know can help be protective or not, especially in, in the development of like alcoholism or alcohol use disorder. Um, but then also, you know, if concurrently you are having, I, I would love to say mental health and um, the presence or absence of a mental health condition really plays a huge factor, um, I believe, in, in, in further using substances. Because if somebody's depressed and, you know, at the time that they start using cocaine, that alleviates their depression, you know, it's going to be a positive, re a negative reinforcement, you know, it's taking away their depression. So they're going to continue to use. Uh, similarly, if somebody's suffering from anxiety, they, they can benefit from drinking a beer in their mind, that it's helping them calm them down, getting rid of that anxiety, that's going to further, uh, you know, solidify them using so, mm -hmm. you know, trauma, abuses, earlier onset presence or absence of you know, mental health issues and also physical condition, you know, physical illnesses. Uh, I mean, pain, trying to get rid of pain right now, uh, physical, psychological, uh, that's contributing now to a lot of people, um, you know, using and using in excess. Right. So when does that use become an addiction? Because, you know, somebody having a beer doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that they're an alcoholic. You know, when does that transition? I mean, it, it, it really it transitions from a, from a chronological perspective, individually, uh, neurobiologically, you know, it's, it's when there's enough of these changes that occur in the brain where the ability to abstain from, a, uh, from a substance, there's a behavioral loss of control, 
there's a certain amount of cravings. There's a dysfunctional re recognition of negative consequences. And there's this like emotional, uh, like lability, uh, fluctuation. And when those kind of five characteristics keep going on and become a persistent pattern um, throughout a certain period of time uh, while engaging with the substance of, of abuse, use, misuse, which creates this dependency um, altogether. I mean, I don't want to rattle off the DSM-5 criteria for substance use disorder, but mm -hmm. in essence, I'm trying to, you know, paint a picture that somebody is using and uh, using in a way with those, those five characteristics that I mentioned in an obsessive compulsive way and they're functioning. It starts to affect aspects of their life that weren't affected prior to drinking. Now, there's, there's cutoff levels and stuff that, you know, qualify us for heavy drinking or binge drinking. But in essence, when you're drinking or using drugs to the point where your life becomes a negative, you know, you're, you're having a disorder is starting to come about. Mm -hmm. What about the case of, say, like someone's a high functioning alcoholic, you know, they're able to hold a full time job, you know, they might still have good relationships, you know. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, dynamics involved with um, with that because some people who've achieved, uh, you know, higher end jobs or are employed, they often come from certain type of backgrounds, temperament, resiliencies that have allowed them to get to that level. So they tend to have certain, uh, I guess, um, other characteristics that can help them maybe compensate. So, you know, a lot of times it, you'll see the breakdown though occur first, you know, in their personal life because there's less external accountability. You know, they, they'll start drinking when they come home and they'll start, um, you know, their wife might start to get, or husband or spouse getting, recognizing it first. They might end up getting, um, you know, in fights but then when they go to work, you know, they, they kind of step it up a little bit and they, and they find themselves, you know, uh, vulnerable to the external eye of their employment that helps them, you know, earn a living. So you'll see this person maybe start to decompensate in their private life, but they tend to work and stay employed and that starts to take effect later on. So um, usually... I'm not talking about this for everybody, but we tend to see um, preservation in the employment. Uh, and we also, we see functionality um, happening and people tend to, you know, uh, have their personal life affected first. And uh, we often will see these being functional people because they can fulfill external obligations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are not, you know, uh, suffering from a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we talked a lot about alcohol and, and you know, that is the most commonly abused substance in the United States, most of the world, and also what um, is the most common addiction. But um, are there, is addiction to different substances fundamentally similar? Obviously there are, you know, specific differences in between how different substances affect the brain, but in terms of like, the addiction process and the development of an addiction, are there like significant differences or are they 
or is it fundamentally the same from substance to substance? I would say fundamentally it's the same. Um, the way that, that we understand it is, like I mentioned before, um, you know, once the drug is introduced or substance is introduced, the relationship on how it affects the brain, the reward mechanisms, uh, the motivational mechanisms, the changes in the hierarchy, they usually end up um, following a similar path uh, in terms of the reward mechanism and the development of addiction from a neurobiological and neuroanatomical perspective. They follow a similar course. Okay, and besides alcohol, what are some of the other most commonly abused substances that, because obviously some are more addictive than others, um, what have you seen in your work? I mean, I, I think one of the things that we don't probably talk about with nicotine, it being, you know, the most addictive um, substance that's there. And, and that's really a, a, a huge toll that it has on uh, morbidity and mortality around, around the world. Um, that's a very addictive substance. And, uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, we've seen such a huge rise in, I think everybody, it's, it's now so publicized and not just affected people on a personal level who might be listening to this, but um, I think when you see it um, on television and the government talking about it, you know, the opioid epidemic, that's really been something that um, has, has hit hard, really hard. And, um, you know, I think we, we've seen things change over the chronology of time from, you know, the, the 60s and the 70s um, through, you know, through this decade. And uh, currently, you know, we've seen a, a rise in multiple different levels of drugs and over, especially during the COVID uh, pandemic. You know, not only have we seen this opioid epidemic uh, hit, hit so hard, but we've seen rises in other things in all classes of drugs and alcohol, cocaine, cocaine, actually overdose and deaths have, have spiked over the more recent years than, than we would have thought. And, um, you know, I think they, they go through their stages, but um, definitely I think opioids and um, both prescription pills and, and heroin, and then these kind of, you know, other offshoots of opioids. Um, mm -hmm. I think those are really the, the, the biggest deals right now, only because of the, the mortality that's associated with the rapid death that can occur um, with those drugs. Right. Yeah. Also, you brought up, you know, the pandemic. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the mental health issues that have, you know, kind of arisen through this time and how those connect to substance abuse. I mean, I don't know one person that's not affected by this, right? None of us do. We're, yeah. It's, it's, it's a pandemic. That it's affected the world. So, you know, I think that the amount of stress, the anxiety, the unknown, obviously it, it would take people that who are susceptible, who um, if I had to divide it, those who suffer from addiction or mental health issues and those who didn't, I think you know, when you put somebody with an external stress like this, of this magnitude, you know, you're really challenging their sobriety. And, and so the increase of, you know, I think the way that the world was unprepared for this, you know, we're living our lives daily. I don't think everybody's thinking, am I going to catch the next super flu? And 
at least not here, maybe in the U.S. as as much because we are, you know, considered scientifically and medically advanced, you know, and and we haven't been running around with masks and stuff like that. So when this happened, there probably is, you know, different stages of acceptance of how this would affect us personally. So depending on your background, if you are somebody who is, you know, uh, somewhat catastrophic in your thinking and you um, suffer from a, an addictive process, you could have used that early on to say, oh my God, what's the point, you know, to get a case of the, you know, I don't give a damn, um, let me just um, go ahead and relapse. But then that's different than somebody who really starts to have a true exacerbation of, you know, their mental health symptoms that, um, you know, ultimately suffering from stress and anxiety then starts to drink more and more excessively or use substances um, that they weren't using previously. So I think there's a combination of both, you know, you've seen people relapsing, and then you've seen higher usage of substances on people that probably didn't meet a substance use disorder um, during this time. Right. So Dr. Bot, um, you know, we've talked a lot about what is addiction generally, you know, but for, you know, individual listeners who are wondering maybe if they suffer from addiction or, you know, they're wondering if one of their loved ones suffers from addiction um, on a specific individual basis, what would be the best way for someone to kind of like get answers to those questions for their individual circumstance about themselves or someone that they love? I mean, that's, that's really depends on their, their resources. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to get information for yourself. Um, not just because we're here, you know, speaking and we're online and on air that, you know, we, serve as an information uh, data bank at addictioncenter.com. And we're always available to provide information to those seeking help. You know, um, you know, people go online nowadays, and it's the fine first step that people try and do to seek help for 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 things, regardless of it's a medical illness, um, uh, addictive illness, um, mental health issue. And, um, I think that's the first place people look, but, you know, we're taught in medicine that, you know, we should be providing primary, secondary, uh, tertiary interventions. So hopefully if somebody has even a, a primary care provider, you know, not feeling the stigma, the taboo that they can't bring it up because a lot of times, you know, people who are suffering from underlying conditions, they don't bring it up to their, their internist or their family family doctor. And it's unfortunate because these doctors are there to help. They can help earlier on than, than they are, you know, maybe perceived and maybe due to the shame and to the guilt, you know, they, they won't bring that up, but you know, this is, this is that compounding relationship between, you know, society's understanding that they can seek help from those individuals earlier on when they are suspecting substance use, issues or mental health issues, but also the primary care provider's responsibility to increase and enhance screening for these issues. So it's a combined, I believe, um, you know, proposal that I would say that everybody needs to do. 
But um, specifically, yeah, if you're looking for some help for yourself or an individual, most people are, are looking online. Um, you know, there's obviously other nuanced places that they can go to, but how do you, how do you first come out to discuss it? You know, and, and I think you try and seeking a healthcare professional, um, even your doctor, um, or going online is, is a place where people look first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, what could somebody kind of like expect from treatment? So if they think that they, you know, are struggling with an addiction, but they really have no idea what to expect, um, what would that start with? Well, I think treatment varies for each individual. It, it should be determined based on, you know, the, the needs of a person uh, uniquely. You know, I don't think a treatment center, private, public, um, can, can treat everybody. And they need to recognize their limitations. So there are, you, there are uniquenesses, um, unique, um, you know, characteristics to, to each facility. And that needs to be matched with, with the patient's needs. So, so depending on, you know, what is determined, you know, there's multiple levels of care that are, are established by the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And, you know, it starts anywhere from, in the, when directly talking about substance abuse, it's, it, there's inpatient, high acute levels of care all the way to early intervention. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, a lower level of care for lower intensity, lower impairment, higher functioning individuals. So, you know, depending on where you are in your addiction and, you know, how are you functioning from an, uh, a withdrawal and intoxication perspective? How are you functioning from a psychological and uh, emotional cognitive perspective? How are you suffering from, you know, uh, how's your recovery environment? Do you have a place to stay? What's your relapse? Per, you know, you match those multiple dimensions up amongst, you know, the person and use it kind of like a crosswalk that ASAM has established for people and then um, see if they, which level of care would best suit them. Right. So, so I know I'm not going into specifics, but, um, you know, a person going through withdrawal should end up in a detox facility, hopefully, so they can get mm-hmm. adequate care. And somebody who might be smoking cannabis here and there, but it's functioning, but it's contemplating, you know, um, stopping, but it's still functioning and not have a major negative impact happening in their life, maybe wants to go to a lower level of care. So it really depends on, you know, the individual and where they're at. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I feel like a lot of people you know, are struggling, but they're like, I can do this on my own. You know, like, I don't need to get help. Um, do you think professional treatment is always better? You know, there's the statistical answer and, you know, that evidence has shown that if you seek treatment and if you engage in treatment, you're going to have a, uh, a better outcome than um, those that don't seek it. But that's based on the clinical population that is being looked at at that time. It's very hard to assess how many people who are out there who would meet a substance use disorder diagnosis and who are getting better without treatment. It's hard to um, give you that number or that percentage. Um, And especially because we're talking about a global issue. 
um, from our experience, though, from people who are engaging in um, treatment, who are relapsing, going back to treatment, if they attempt treatment, uh, go through the support systems, you know, I have their underlying co-occurring illnesses identified and get on appropriate medications that they may need, yes, their outcomes will be better than if they don't receive that type of support through those therapeutics, interventions, environmental changes, and appropriate meds if needed. Mm -hmm. Are there things that people can do to kind of decrease their chances of relapsing? You know, I think people use this phrasing, work the program, right? You know, um, it's really looking at those multiple dimensions of their lives that um, have affected them and not replicating those things um, that they um, used in the first place. So whatever environment was conducive to them using, they have to change that whole construct. That might include you know, avoiding person, places, things, and situations that triggered certain thoughts that created certain emotions that led to certain behaviors. So yeah, it, it, it means, you know, uh, changing a lot of your life um, to help you live a positive life. So if there were negative friends that you were using around avoiding those people, you know, Obviously, I'm saying this in a very constructional way. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do when you're suffering from something that has, you know, hijacked the way you think. But in essence, you know, it, it is really about creating that proper support system, that environment, you know, getting um, on the right medicine if you need it um, and, and staying engaged. I think social isolation and not being... Um, having a good network of people around you that are sober and healthy supports really deconstructs your, your chances of staying um, substance free. So um, definitely, you know, changing the construct in which your substance use existed, um, psychologically, socially, environmentally, spiritually, and um, putting those, replace those with positive variables positive people. And that's really um, the way that you can stay, at least increase your chances of saying um, substance free. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that takes time too, though, to kind of build up that sober support system. You know, because not everybody has that right away, you know, if they get out of treatment. Yeah. And, and how are people thinking about that when they're obscured with substances on their mind right away? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I think that's what happens, you know, when you're talking to somebody who's still in the, you know, acute phases of addiction, I mean, I don't think they're thinking correctly. They're not feeling correctly. Their motivation to change is often so distorted and their motivation to do anything. Um, the reality becomes so obscured because you're, you're, you're living, uh, you know, a, a life that is artificially created. It's being created by the substances that are so powerfully affecting the way you think, feel, move, breathe. So um, trying to be rational at that point becomes very hard. And then trying to look out for your self-preservation becomes even harder. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, Jeff, do you have any other questions for Dr. Bot? You know, I, I don't think that I do. Um, I think this has been a great discussion that we've had. Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys speaking with me today. And, you know, I think it's, it's such a complex thing and it affects us all differently. And sometimes, unless it affects you personally, sometimes people don't think it's something to deal with. But um, just like on a major chronic medical condition, you know, addiction's taken its a toll on our world. And I think everybody has a role to play in, um, you know, helping. And especially if you know somebody that uh, is suffering with addiction, you know, pointing them in the right direction and the right tools. And um, I know at addictioncenter.com, you know, there's a, there's a lot of information there. So hopefully people will reach out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for talking with us today, Dr. Bot, And thank you to everyone who tuned in to another episode of Straight Talk with Dr. Bot. Thanks, guys. Uh, we'll talk to you guys next time.